So let me take just a second to recap where we've been so far in the Gospel of Mark. We're only beginning now the third chapter, but so far a lot has happened. Mark begins his Gospel by introducing us to John the Baptist, a character that Mark, a man that Mark said, uh, identifies as this 1,500-year-old prophesied guy. So the, the, the scriptures that they have at the time, some 1,500-year-old scriptures, say a special prophet's going to come in the end times, and he's going to say, and he's going to prepare a way for the Lord. Mark says this is that guy, introducing us to John the Baptist. John uh, then introduces us to Jesus, and he identifies Jesus say, saying, this is the man, the one who is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He is so great. And so John then baptizes Jesus. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the skies are torn apart and a voice booms, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Immediately, Jesus is led by the Spirit off into the wilderness to be tempted. That's all we're told, be tempted by the devil. That's all we're told. The very next sentence, John's in jail and Jesus is preaching in Galilee. Galilee is the northern part of the country of Israel. So you've got to remember, we're not in the big city now. We're not in the capital city of Jerusalem. We're not at the temple. We are in Galilee, kind of out in the sticks. We're kind of out in the sticks. And Jesus' message, I think I have this on your notes page. Maybe not. Maybe it's just on the screen. But Jesus' message from uh, the very first chapter of Mark is, the NIV translates it, the kingdom of God is near. Repent. And believe the good news. That's Jesus' message as he's preaching in the countryside. Or as Scott McKnight has a new translation I've found fascinating and really helpful to read alongside my others. Scott McKnight has a new translation of the New Testament. He's called the Second Testament. He translates it like this. The season is filled out and the empire has come close. Convert and be allegiant to the gospel. Makes you think. It makes stops and makes you think. Huh? He's intentionally using some words we're not used to using so that we can think about it anew. The, the season is filled out and the empire has come close. Convert and be allegiant to the gospel. Well, Jesus' message gets a lot of attention. Jesus then couples his message with two very important things. First, he begins calling disciples. Calling disciples is an act of authority. He's announcing himself to the world as a rabbi, as a teacher that should be listened to. He's calling these disciples, and it's a significant uh, uh, request to these disciples. They're going to have to give up years of their life to follow him. That would be normal, and they would follow him around, maybe giving up their jobs, uh, leaving their families for a long time, of course. So Jesus calls these disciples. And the second thing that Jesus couples with this message, this message of empire, is miracles. Jesus has this ability to do these miracles. The first person he heals is somebody with a, uh, 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 an evil spirit, also in the synagogue. And then he heals a fever, and then he stays up half the night healing half the village, so much so that he has to escape the crowds. So at this point, at this point, well, it's the miracles, really, that get him going. It's the miracles in the crowds that get all of the serious pastors in town up in arms. Eyebrows are raised. They're wondering, who is this guy? And they start to really make some ac ac accusations, some pointed questions. Um, 
They asked him last week, we talked, we, we read the scripture where Jesus is, is walking with his disciples and the disciples are just picking grain and, 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 and eating it. And that's a violation of their law because they were doing it on the Sabbath day. So here the, 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 the Pharisees, or I'm calling them kind of, you know, serious pastors, they're, they start their line of questioning there. Jesus reminds them, God's law is given to you as a gift. This was the message of last week's sermon. God's law was given to you as a gift, not as a burden. You don't serve the law, the law serves you. Then he, again, couples it with this, this powerful claim. He says, I, Jesus says, I am the Lord of the law. He says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the law. I am Lord over the law. This isn't going to do him any favors when it comes to calming down the serious pastors who are really feeling threatened by him at this point. Excuse me. Next scene. Here we go on today's text. I want to go through it just piece by piece with you and understand what's happening here. Let's start at the very beginning. Another time, Mark writes, Jesus went to the synagogue. So we're in the synagogue. Small country church, right? Small country church. It's a, it's a Sabbath day, so it's going to be crowded in there. It's an important place to be on the Sabbath. After all, you can't do much else. The pastors won't let you. Lots of rules on the Sabbath, right? And a man with a shriveled hand is there. Alexander, have you ever, in the summertime, gone outside and found those yellow flowers in your yard? Yes, what are those called? Dandelions, right? Have you ever picked a bunch and given them to mommy for a gift? Do they last a long time or a little time? A little time, he said. That's right. They never last, do they? Uh, no, they last for like five minutes, even if you put them in water. Those, uh, that's a picture of the withered hand that the man has. Most of the time when the Bible uses this word for the withered hand, it, it uses it in, in conjunction with plants, plants that have dried up or drooping and dying. So that's what's going on with his hand. Probably a congenital issue. Uh, some of them, let's see, we have the scripture up on the screen too. Again, let's put verses 1 and 2 up on the screen again. So the man with the shriveled hand is there. Some of them are looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. So we assume that the some of thems are these same serious pastors who've been accusing Jesus uh, in, the, in the grain fields. Uh, notice, well, first of all, before I say anything else, not all the Pharisees were bad guys. A lot of them are going to turn become Christians. Uh, but some of them, Jesus, enough of them were bad that Jesus had more problems than, uh, than you want to have for sure. And so here they are, they're at the synagogue, they're at God's house on the Sabbath, but they have no interest in the things of God. Their hearts are absolutely not in the right place. So they're going to church, in essence, to be the church police in a way. Now, have you ever known anybody who does that? Or maybe, <laughs> I see the heads. no, never heard of this, right? Of course, yeah, you've heard of this before, I know you have. Maybe you've even been in this maybe you've even been that guy or that or that woman i have been that that guy and i'll confess that sometimes i have to slap myself on upside the head at least mentally uh 
when I'm at either at a different church or hearing a pastor maybe comes from a different tradition than I do or something, or even has just different opinion about something or different belief about something. I said, come on, Adam, can you really not learn anything from this, from this, from this guy? Can, can God's spirit really not speak to you, Adam, through this, this, this person? Can you really not worship with these brothers and sisters? They do it differently than you. Their music is different than yours, but come on, Adam, really? And of course, God can and God does work through um, people and congregations who are very different than me uh, and blesses me in, in worship, and I can worship with them as well. But I have to get past that, uh, that hardness, that initial hardness, that wall that comes up when there's something I don't like or when there's something that's unfamiliar or especially when there's something I'm, I don't agree with. Well, these serious pastors who are at the synagogue on this day, that's them, but they don't even want to get rid of the hardness. They're on a mission, actually. They really do think that they're the church police. So, it gives us a minute, though, to really think about, see, I told you two stories in a row that happen on the Sabbath, and they look like they're about the Sabbath, but maybe I'm going to let you down. I'm not really talking a lot about the Sabbath and how we're supposed to observe the Sabbath in 2024, because I don't think these texts really tell us a lot about how to obey the fourth commandment or how not to obey the fourth commandment. I think these texts are really about the heart of God's people and the heart, and in here today specifically, the heart of God's people as they come to worship. And so it gives us all just a minute to think about where our hearts are when we come to this place that God's given us, to St. Andrew. Heaven knows, you know, I'm not Jesus, and we know that this place, these people, us, we, we're not perfect, right? But what's the, where's your heart? And especially, where's your heart when something happens that maybe isn't your favorite? It is beyond encouraging when I know, and this happens a lot, when I know that there's something I do or say or that there's something about this church that one of you doesn't care for or maybe doesn't even quite agree with, but for the love of brothers and sisters and for the unity of the church, you're willing to set it aside and let it go. I know that can't be the case with all issues. I understand that. But I know, and even in this room, looking out at you, I know that there's a number of things that you all set aside that you would do differently or that you wish were different. And you set those things aside. And that's such a special thing to me about St. Andrew and about you. So thanks. These leaders, they do give us an opportunity, though, right, to check our hearts, to re-ask re ourselves the question, does he have to agree with me on A, B, and C to be my pastor? Or do I have to agree with how the church does X, Y, and Z to love and be loved here. 
This place is a humble, messed up community of sinners. But you know what? I think God has sovereignly placed you here. In this place. Amongst us. For your good. For our good. For the good of Auburn and for God's glory. I really think that's true. And by remembering that, we can protect ourselves from being like the characters in today's text that we don't want to be like. We can protect our hearts from growing hard. Speaking of a hard heart, when the Bible talks about a hard heart, I used to think that it was all about um, the feelings that you have. Like I don't I feel cold towards you, and I want to feel cold towards you, so my heart is hard. But actually, it's bigger than that. Because think about it. The ancients, they didn't really know what the brain was or what the brain did. Like we do. We scientifically, we, we know the different lobes of the brain and whatever, brain chemicals, and we're messing with that all the, you know. But the ancients, they just described it all as the heart. They felt their thoughts in their gut, in their loins, you might say. That's where you feel most of the feels. And so when they say heart, they mean their gut, and they mean both their thoughts, their thought, their, their intellect, and their feelings. They're not really differentiating between the two, maybe like we do. So more on that in just a second. Let's continue with the text, though. So these guys, they watch Jesus closely. They're watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Is the man with the withered hand, then, a plant? I don't know. The, the, the first man Jesus healed on the Sabbath was demon-possessed. He was shouting at him, so nobody really got mad about that, probably because he was interrupting worship. Um, and so it's like, you know, he's hollering at him, and, 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 and that's just expected, that he would do something about it, obviously. Today, we had an interruption of worship, obviously not demon-possessed, but we did, we're going to stop. We're not going to just continue on while there's something obviously more pressing in the room to take care of today, like John. Well, in Jesus' first healing, there was, you know, what else are you going to do? He might be violating a Sabbath law technically, but what else are you going to do? Then the rest of his healings took place in a private residence. And, well, the, the fever took place in a private residence, and then the rest of them took place after sunset, so it wouldn't have been the Sabbath anymore. But um, it seems in this text, though, it seems in this text that the pastors have put this guy in the front row kind of as a trap, kind of like a plant. Well, Jesus is happy to take the bait. Let's go on to verse 3. Jesus says to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, those pastors, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? Jesus reads their thoughts. His logic is strange, though, because it, it, it wouldn't be evil to wait until tomorrow. This guy's probably had a shriveled hand his whole life. And he's not saving his life by healing him, and he's not killing him, but I think he's using hyperbole to make a point. I think he's really just, you know, shock effect here. He's, he, he's really drilling down on, on them. Let's see if we get some more info, though, from, as the text continues on. Because as we go on now to the next part, the, the serious pastor types, they remain silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger. Deeply distressed, these are strong words, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, heart meaning intellect and emotions, deeply distressed. This is only the second time in the, this is, there's only two places in the gospel where Jesus is directly said to be angry. 
And I didn't believe that when I first read it in my commentaries this week. I had to go through and check another half dozen places. Surely it says he was angry there. It doesn't. The, the gospel writers never come out and say that he was angry anywhere else except here. And then just another chapter before, he was indignant when um, the, the cripple or the, the, I can't remember if it's a cripple or a leper, says, if you can, you can heal me. Jesus is indignant with that guy and says, you know, if I can. Those are the only two places where Jesus has ever said specifically that Jesus gets angry. And here he's made angry. What makes Jesus angry? In both times, it's, it's disbelief, right? It's the hard hearts of his people. The hard hearts of his people. And like I've already told you, the, the ancients, they're not separating the heart from the mind, like the emotions from the, from the mind like we do. So a hard heart isn't an emotional thing. It's really a mental thing for, as far as we're concerned. It's a mental thing. It's a, refusal to, it's a refusal to think the way you must think if you are going to be saved. A hard heart is a refusal to think the way you must think if you are to be saved. That man, this man Jesus is Lord, which means I am not. Is Jesus Lord? That's the question that these Pharisees are confronted with, and an answer is demanded of them. It's not really a text about legalism or what happens on the Sabbath. It's, it, it, it's about the question that every woman and every man must, make, must answer every day. Is Jesus my Lord? Either Jesus is my Lord or someone or something else's. Jesus is my top priority, or someone or something else's. Jesus is my top allegiance, or someone or something else's. Because you must serve someone. You will serve something or someone if you do not serve Jesus. If Jesus is your Lord, you will serve him. If he is not your Lord, you will kill him. Those are the only two options he leaves on the table for us. Verse 6 says, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The message is, Jesus' message from Mark chapter 1, is that God's empire has come with Jesus. Go ahead and write this down. If you're taking notes, write this down. The message of Jesus is that, that God's empire has come with Jesus. It is now here. God's empire is now here, and it's still here in the world today through his church. The church means people, the people of God. doesn't necessarily mean one congregation and, or a building. It's not that. The church means the people of God. Jesus' message is God's empire has come with Jesus. It is now here in the church and will come fully soon with Jesus' return. And the question to us and to everybody, even to our neighbors and our families, who then is Jesus? Who then is Jesus? We'll close with this um, tree that there's a grid or a, a diagram on your, on your bulletin. We'll close building out this diagram. Um, it's based on C.S. Lewis' famous argument, liar, lunatic, or Lord, that Jesus must be one of those three. It starts with a question, or a statement rather. It starts with a statement that Jesus is God, because that's what Jesus claimed to be. And you can do this if you're, if you're sharing the faith with somebody. This is a great tool. You can draw it on a napkin, on a piece of paper. 
Well, you can also think about it for yourself today. Because Jesus makes the claim that he is God. Now, if that is true, if yes, it is true, then I'll be allegiant to him. I will serve him. He is my Lord. If, on the other hand, we go to the other side of the graphic and we say that it is false. Okay, stop right there. If we say that it is false, well, Jesus claimed to be God. So what do we call somebody who claims to be God who is not? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Does he know that, that it is untrue? So go to the next one. If you say he knew it, so he claimed to be God, he was not God, and he knew it. What's that make him? What's that make him? A liar. If he claimed to be God, which he does many times and in many different ways, and his immediate followers tell us that he was God, if he, and it was false, but he didn't know it, what would you say about me? If I were telling you I'm God, and I really believe it, you, I would be crazy, right? You'd be a lunatic. And this is where Lewis comes from. So Lewis would say, what he doesn't leave open to us is the option that, oh, he's just a good moral teacher that we should just take good lessons from. Because he claimed to be God, and if he knew it, and he, if he knew he wasn't God, then he was a liar. And good moral teachers aren't liars. We shouldn't listen to people who are habitual liars for our ethics and morality. And if he claimed to be God and he didn't know it, then he was a lunatic. And then on what basis can we take his other claims or teachings seriously? Why in the world would you take those seriously and say, oh, he's a really, you know, uh, Gandhi and Buddha and Jesus, all just the same thing. Let's just take him. No, he's, e he's either a bad guy who deceived everybody in his orbit or he's a lunatic who l equally duped a whole bunch of people. The only other option that could be available to you is legend. Is he a legend? But then you have to deal with the fact that there aren't any serious academics who think that he didn't exist. And then though, of those who think that he, of those who understand that yes, he really did exist and he really did have a, 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 a huge impact on the world, you got to explain the fact that his followers were willing to die and spread his message all throughout the known world, even in the face of tremendous persecution, including his most, his closest eleven followers, who who at the night of his betrayal and crucifixion fled from him for fear of their own skins, but, no, but who each of them would all face um, execution, martyrdom by the end, except to John who would be exiled. What changed? What changed? And how was that early church in the first 200 plus years? The early church, for longer than the United States has been a country, the early church suffered, bled, and died in droves rather than retract the statement that Jesus is Lord. All they would have to do is say Caesar is Lord and Jesus was just a nice teacher. And they would have avoided all of that stuff. So if you're going to go with legend, you have a lot of things that you're going to have to explain. So liar, lunatic, Lord, or legend. What does it mean then if we go back to the first and we say he was God, that it was true, that he's our Lord. It means now that we have a decision to make. 
Because just because you go down the true branch on that tree and you land on Lord doesn't mean you're saved. Doesn't mean you belong to Jesus. The demons believe that Jesus was God. Hmm? What's the difference? They don't pledge allegiance to him. They don't pledge allegiance to him. He's not their Lord. Is he yours? Let's pray. Each of us now has an opportunity to respond to Jesus. He is always listening. And he delights in receiving your prayers. He delights in coming near to you. He delights in claiming you as his own. We all have an opportunity now to just speak to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I pledge allegiance to you. Will you please show me where I'm tempted to be more allegiant to something else so that I can put that under your lordship as well. Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying and rising again. And thank you for claiming me a sinner to be forgiven and to be with you forever. Amen. Should we sing together? Let's sing together. I invite you to stand with us. Yeah, Paul.